0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. What is up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This week I'm talking to, and I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, Pete Anderson. Pete is a true legend in the guitar world and it was truly a treat to sit down and talk with him for this length of time. We get into all sorts of different territory on the main episode. Patreon is absolutely bonkers, so if you want to get access to that, go to patreon.com slash tonemob, and you can get the bonus episodes that I record every single week. There are a ton of episodes back there, and it's honestly some of my favorite conversations ever, including this one with Pete. Now, that is not to say that the main episode is any slouch at all. It's still one of my favorite conversations I have ever had, and I think you will agree. I want to get right into it, but one small bit of business before we do. Just a quick reminder, if you're doing any gear buying, please check out the affiliate links associated with this show. They are down in the show notes. If you go to ToneMob.com Sweetwater or ToneMob.com Reverb for any of your gear purchasing needs, anything you do through those links will come back and help support the show. So if you're already planning on buying stuff, please hit those links and it will help me out immensely. I really, really appreciate that. All right, I don't want to clog up your time with any more of this business stuff. I want to get right to the meat of this episode with Mr. Pete Anderson. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Weiland, and with me today, I have somebody I've been looking forward to talking to for a long time, Mr. Pete Anderson, how's it going?
1: It's going good.
0: Waiting for summertime. Waiting for summertime in LA. Isn't it always yeah. summer?
1: <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Every couple of days. You know, <laughs> it'll 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 act like spring for about three days and then summer hits. It'll act like winter for about a week and then summer hits. So it's like it's like what they say about they used to say about Ireland was like if you don't like the weather wait a few minutes and it'll change <laughs> but, but <laughs> here it's like if you have if, if you like summertime just wait a few days and it'll be summer again <laughs> they
0: say the same thing about uh, Oregon that they say in Ireland so you know, yeah exactly it, it it is known as a rainy area at least in the Willamette Valley but uh, I don't know we have pretty nice summers it's uh oh you have it's, it's gorgeous nice.
1: up there I love yeah. it yeah. Very nice spot. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, I don't even know where to begin with you, you know. Oftentimes we'll get uh people on the show especially, you know, some amp builders or people who haven't got the opportunity to to tell their story. But man, you've done so much in your career. I don't even know where the best place to start is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's it's good that it's a guitar show because it's all been about guitar. I mean, the 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 uh, motivating factor in everything I've ever done has been basically to play my guitar. Mm-hmm. So every everything's been an excuse to play.
0: I love it. I love it. Mine. Uh, I, I'm working on that. I, I end up talking about it more than I end up playing it, but I I sure do love it. When did you start? Like, when did it really bite you? When did the love for the instrument bite you?
1: Um, I've told this story many times, but um, you know. I was a I was like six seven years old in the fifties, and and in the in the nineteen fifties, media wasn't anywhere near what it is now, right? So, you had three television stations, maybe three radio stations. You know, two maybe two new Detroit. We had two newspapers, so it was media was was uh, was pretty limited. So your outlook on the world was moderately limited, um, and so as a boy. And you probably had this experience, too, with your parents and your parents' friends. It would be like, hey, Blake, what do you want to be when you get big? What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, they keep Mm -hmm. asking you. Well, in the 50s, I didn't know what my possibilities were. You know, (laughs) my parents were auto workers, and I knew they didn't want me to be an auto worker or a laborer. So that wasn't a good answer. And then I knew about doctors. I kind of didn't even know about lawyers. I knew about police. I knew about... The military. So, you know, you would say, you know, I I want to be a doctor or some make your parents proud. You know, whatever eight year old kid says he wants to be when he grows up. But I saw Elvis Presley on television, Mm -hmm. and I was like, I want to be that guy. And in retrospect, what attracted me to Elvis because I thought Elvis was playing the guitar was Scotty Moore because Scotty was the guitar player. So, in in retrospect. The the sound of the guitar attracted me to wanting to be Elvis Presley. Now I sort of have a theory that every m- maybe every generation or generation and a half I'm not quite sure, but there's been these cataclysmic musical events. Elvis Presley was a cataclysmic. It was like a comet hitting. I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of records he sold under the restrictions of limited media and the population. It Absolutely, was unbelievable, un, un, unheard of, unheard of. So my generation, it was Elvis Presley. The next generation was, the next one pretty quickly was the Beatles. Then there was, you know, Bruce Springsteen, Kurt Cobain. Every, every generation has had pretty much some sort of a musical catalyst. And in my case, it was Elvis. So my theory was that you would see this cataclysmic musical event be attracted to it and go okay I want to be Elvis Presley. And then and then after a while you go well maybe I'm not going to be Elvis Presley. But if I can't be Elvis Presley, the next best thing is to be Elvis Presley's guitar player. <laughs> and if you can't be Elvis Presley's guitar player, then the next best thing is maybe I could be his bass player. And then the next best thing is be his drummer and then the, and then after that it's like well maybe I could hang out with the band and be a sound mixer or whatever you wanted to be part of that that pyramid of success right mm-hmm. and so it was elvis presley and oddly enough scotty moore because it was really i just fell in love with the sound of the the sound and the image of the guitar at eight years old set me off like a stick of dynamite it was like that's i didn't i didn't know i could make a living at it all i knew is i wanted to play guitar that was that was motivation wow
0: that's a, I'll never forget. I mean, uh, it's gone now, unfortunately, but touring the Gimf- Gibson Memphis facility and they had one of Scotty's guitars there and it almost gave me goosebumps. I got,
1: like, I got to meet him. I got to meet him. You it. did? Yeah. Wow. I, met, I met him in Memphis, uh, playing with Dwight at a Elvis birthday bash at the pyramid, which is the big basketball arena. And that was the era when, um, Michael Jackson was married to Lisa Marie Presley. Okay. And, uh, They threw this big event, and everybody played Elvis songs, and we played uh, Mystery Train actually. And Scotty was there with whoever was left from his group, and I got to shake hands with him and say hello and just kind of tip the hat to him, you know. That's
0: very cool. Very very cool. So, what was the progression like there? So that's it. This is a good place to go into, I think. So you you saw Elvis? Oh, you mean from
1: (laughs) from eight years old on.
0: That's what I mean. Like, what at what point did you start? Uh, what at what point did you get hooked up with Dwight? Because obviously, there's a giant gap there. Oh, that yeah, could right. probably fill in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: from eight to 35 or something, 34. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, I had to get a guitar, and you know, that was a, that took a while because, again, in the 50s, you know, I went, to, I told my mom I want to play guitar, so she was happy to have music in my life, so we went to the local. East Detroit Conservatory of Music. And the guy said, she said, my son wants to learn to play guitar. And they went, okay, he's too small to play guitar. That's what they said. And I wasn't abnormally small. They were just full of And they said, (laughs) he's too small to play guitar, but he could play Hawaiian guitar, which was a big deal back then. They had Hawaiian guitar on television and Aldo Ray and all that kind of stuff. He said he could play that. And then when he gets a little bigger... And can hold the guitar he can switch over to guitar and so we bought that and all i cared about was they gave me a guitar and it had one of those metal uh, flip nuts that made the guitar into effectively like a dobro or or a hawaiian okay. guitar so mm-hmm. i started with that and i did that for about i did lessons for about uh oh i don't know maybe uh maybe four weeks, and I would play the guitar on the ta- on the kitchen, I mean on the dining room table in front of the window. And my buddies would look through the window and go, hey, Petey's playing his guitar. Hey, look at this. So then I would take the guitar and it had a string around it, one of those multicolored chords that was uh, basically a guitar strap. So yep. I would put, the, put that around my neck and open my front door and the kids would, would get on the porch and I'd have the, the screen door between me and them and I'd put it. And I figure I didn't know why I could not fret the strings because the nut was so high, but I thought that the tuning pegs had something to do with, tuning, with playing the guitar. So <laughs> I started wanking on those things and singing Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Hound and the down, kids would all yeah. scream. And so... After after that, and I took the guitar back, and it was way out of tune, and it was like, I don't want to do this anymore, Mom. I'm not playing guitar. So that was like you know nine years old. Then Bob Dylan hits the neighborhood. I'm 16, and I was like, man, I, I, I went to a couple of little parties out in the field. Kids were hanging out. Somebody brought a guitar, and I was like, it started all over again. It's like, I'm going to go get a guitar. I just went down to the store. I got $50 out of my account, and I bought an german-made gut string classical guitar and started and I bought a bob dylan song book and started learning like maggie's farm which had one chord in it it had chord symbols and i know the songs because i was listening to them and i would just kind of imitate and figure out what the chords were and just beat on that guitar and that's really when i started playing when i was about 16 16 and a half um and then that was a long process of in Detroit of back then I mean I actually heard born under a bad sign by Albert King when it was a hit in the in the 60s it was on the radio and we had wow. we had you know we had soul stations in Michigan in Detroit there were stations that played exclusively black music so I got to hear Albert King I got to hear BB I got to hear Muddy Waters it really went on a blues tangent um, but my first band was a jug band But it was basically me listening to folk blues. And um, I listened to folk blues and got attracted to reading the liner notes of the records and then kind of working my way backwards. Like if I would see Dave Von Ronk and he would talk about uh, Mississippi John Hurt or something, they were kind of like books, like history books. So I would work my way backwards to find out who these guys' influences were and who they were talking about. Mm-hmm. And then another cataclysmic event, I was probably, I was 17, and there was a club in the, in Detroit called The Chess Mate, and it was all ages. So they didn't serve alcohol, and it was a folk club. So I saw Joni Mitchell there. I saw Dave Von Ronk. I saw Spider John Kerner. I saw uh, Patrick Skye. I saw Tom Rush, all these folk guys there. And um, one day I called the club, and I was going to go there, with my girlfriend and, and another friend of mine and his girlfriend. And they said, I called up and I said, who's playing tonight? And they said, the Paul Butterfield blues band. And I went, what? I had no concept of a blues band. None. I was like, blues was a, a guy with a guitar, like one lightning. Right. Just one, one dude. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I went, Mm -hmm. I went, so I asked the guy on the phone who actually was the owner. His name was Maury. I said, what's a blues band? To me, I thought it might be the Blues Magoos or some kind of rock band that I didn't want to see. I I was totally a folky. So he said, well, he said that Paul Butterfield's this young guy from Chicago and he plays the harmonica. And I was like, harmonica, because I played harmonica in Iraq, like Dylan. And I went, harmonica in a blues band? So now my interest was perked. It was like. And I want to hear this. I I don't. I had no idea what I was walking into. Sure. <laughs> so I said, okay, let's go. So me and my friends go. We walk in the club. Michael Bloomfield's on the phone at the front door yelling at somebody on the phone. I'm like, who's this guy? He was talking on the phone. I walk in. All these electric instruments are there. I'm expecting the worst. We sit down. The club holds maybe 50 people at most. We sit down. It's the original Paul Butterfield blues band without Sam Lay on drums. I think it was Billy Davenport, but it's Mike Bloomfield, you know, Mark Naftalin, Jerome Arnold, uh, uh, Elvin Bishop. It's the guys. And so I'm sitting there and they get ready to play and Butterfield's not, I don't know Butterfield from Adam, right? He's not on the stage and they start playing and there's a guy behind me talking to a, waitress going hey go go down the street and get me a bottle of wine because you couldn't they they didn't serve alcohol and he was trying to get get a drink anyway i looked up and in retrospect that was paul butterfield and he was like 22 at the time or 20 23 so he goes back in this little green room and the band goes on stage and they start playing the instrumental and they played like three songs and Bloomfield kept looking over his shoulder at the green room, like making faces like, Hey, come out here, come out here, come out here. And pa- <laughs> Paul was in the green room drinking, a, trying to drink a bottle of wine. So finally he comes walking out. He's got sunglasses on. The whole band is on stage, but he doesn't fit. So he's on the, on the floor at the front of the stage. He turns around back to the audience, sings something, grab, Grab something. I don't know what it is, and turns around and plays amplified blues harmonica through a microphone. Paul Butterfield, first time ever. I'm like ten feet away. I was like, "Whoa! Oh my God! What is it's got to be a It's got to be an electric harmonica." I never knew mm-hmm. what it was. I'm staring at it, and it was the most amazing sound. And it's just, and they're just killing it. And um, finally, I got a glimpse of it because he raised his sunglasses to see what key he was grabbing, what harmonica. And I could see it was like, it's a Marine band. It's the same harmonicas that I play. Mm -hmm. And I was in total shock. I was like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. So I, I was then, I just worshiped at that altar, went home next day, went to the record store, bought the record. The record on the back said, Paul Butterfield plays honer harmonicas. This record should be played loud. It's <laughs> so nice. <laughs> I had a little music room at my house. I went and wrangled my friends in the neighborhood. I said, you need to come to my house right now. They went, okay. And we were like, we're 17. We're just getting into learning how to listen to music, let alone play. So mm-hmm. they come to the house. I locked it. I closed the door. I put them in. I turn it on loud, and I'm sitting there. All of us are just like mesmerized, just like, Oh my god. Now the back of that record, the first Butterfield record lists everybody, Sonny Boy Williamson, Lightning Hopkins, um Little Walter. Talks about all the influences. So then I just went on a trek by trying to find these records and buy them. And record stores weren't anywhere near what they I have to say were because they are I, I would were, say yeah. are because they're none. <laughs> but if you remember how Tower Records was, well, back then mm-hmm. a lot of records were sold in appliance stores. You would go to the store to buy a washer, a refrigerator, or maybe a record player, and there'd be like five bins, five little cubicles full of records. That was it. Right. In the in the forties, fifties, sixties, especially in into the sixties, you if you had no talent, you didn't make a record there was no way to fix you weren't somebody's darling they were going to give you a record deal you had to have legitimate talent i could go through the jazz section and see all the new jazz records in like 3 minutes right so there just there just wasn't the influx right so, yeah and so mm-hmm. you know i started buying these records and we me and my buddies started trying to play blues and have a blues band that continued on up into the 20 into my early 20s my mother, uh, I was an only child. My dad died when I was five. My mother worked for Chrysler. And so she had retired and decided she was from southeastern Colorado, and she wanted to move back out to the west. She moved to Phoenix. So I was old enough then. I wasn't living at home. So I started going to Phoenix in the winter from Detroit to visit her and then back to Detroit for the summer and started, I finally started a band in Phoenix Brought a couple of friends out from Detroit. We played into our early to mid-20s in Phoenix. And we were playing, like, we had horns in the band. We were playing blues, like Bobby Bland and B.B. King and Big Band Blues, you know, Les McCann, a little bit of jazz, stuff like that. And we were still young kids, and we weren't really good on our instruments. I mean, we were okay. Um, And we sort of ran the course, and me and a bass player then decided You know, do we either go to New York or do we go to Los Angeles? I mean, Austin wasn't even a question at that point. Um, So we decided to go to LA because it was close. And so this bass player and I set out in his Volkswagen van and drove to Los Angeles. And I didn't know one person. I didn't know one person in Los Angeles. And we slept in the van. Parked in parking lots. Police woke us up every morning. Can't sleep here. Can't sleep here, and um, scraped our money together. Got a little apartment in Hollywood. Started going to jam sessions, and then I was in my—I was like 23 years old. This is when I did that. So that's sort of you know I'm 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 on this long track. You know, it's like climbing the Himalayas, and so. And I have no structure to it. I, like I told you before we started, everything was about the guitar. So everything I was doing was like, do I get to play my guitar today? I'm going to an right. audition. I'm going <laughs> to a jam session. I'm looking for a musician. I'm going to a music store. Everything was about me getting to play my guitar. End of story. As zen as it can possibly be, that was the gag.
0: So there wasn't really a goal still at this point. It was just how can I play my guitar as exactly, much exactly still exactly
1: mm-hmm. under any circumstances. Somebody said, "Hey, there's a jam session and it's twenty miles away at this guy's garage. Tell me how to get there. I'll go." I just wanted to play. I just was hungry to play. And it, you know, playing music. I, I went to art school when I got out of high school, and I've, and in talking to people like yourself, I've come to some self awareness that. I used music to create. Some kids, when I was a kid, you know, some kids used music to make money to get them through high school or college. Some kids looked at it like, I want to copy songs, and they were good at it, and I'm just gonna play Beatles songs or I'm gonna play uh, you know, pop songs or whatever like that. And they they never looked at it as a creative outlet. And I looked at it as a creative outlet. so I was I wasn't very good at writing, but I was trying to write. And playing solos was like creative for me because you get a space of time where, especially in the blues, right? It's like, okay, we're going to sing two verses and then you're going to solo over these three chords and you can do whatever you want. So it it filled a need for me to create. And that's how I always looked at music was an opportunity to be creative. And that was, that was the other part of the goal, I think. You know, I used it. My paintbrush was the guitar, and the song was the canvas, and the motivation was create w-
0: Was there ever a moment well, I mean obviously there was at some point, but at what what w- when was the moment when you realized, I think I can do this professionally, like for a living and actually make a living playing my <laughs> instrument? Versus playing in some guy's garage forever, you know.
1: <laughs> I, 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 I don't know that. I, I don't know that I've ever had that moment. I, oh. I, mean, I that's a good. I applaud you for the question, um, and it's a great question. But I know it sounds wacky, but it never entered into it. It just never entered in. It was just a very long, slow, logical pro- progression of like. I used to go, I got a job in a music store because I was like, the coolest thing in the world is, you know, I'd worked in factories as a kid and stuff, and it's like, you mean I can work in a music store and just be around all these guitars and when somebody doesn't walk in and there's a minute, to, I can pick up a guitar and play, Mm
0: -hmm. right? So
1: I worked at this pretty cool music store. It was like a vintage store before they were popular. So I worked at this music store and I got to meet all these cats in L.A. and all these heavy players and kind of be on the cutting edge of what was going on. And, uh, I would go, you know, and listen to, you know, uh, what some of these older guitar players had to say in jazz sessions and set, and the owner was a sax player. So a lot of heavy cats came in. Art Pepper would come in and Ernie Watts and guys that were heady, heady cats that played saxophone in Los Angeles on television, on sessions. And, um, it was a, was kind of a learning experience place for me, uh, and but it, but it was my job at the same time. So it was it was it was kind of it was kind of wacky that that I had that. And then I would hear about somebody said, "Oh yeah, I'm playing this country bar," and so I'd heard about Roy Buchanan and and how he tried to make the guitar sound like a steel guitar, and that was fascinating. And these guys said, "Yeah, I'm the bass actually the bass player." A guy named Bob Gross was the bass player, but he also worked at the guitar store. And he said, hey, I'm playing a gig at this country bar with some good guitar players. Why don't you come out and see us play? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So I went out. Jerry Donahue was one of the guitar players and another guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so Bob was up there playing. So I watched him play, sat in the back, drank a Coke. It was a honky-tonk called Ryan's Roundup. And I watched him play, and during the course of the, two sets that I saw, they played blues, they played country, they played Western swing, they played rock and roll. So they played all the genres. So if you play Western swing, you can play jazz licks. You play Chuck Berry, of course, that's an anomaly to itself. Blues, you can play what you want to play. Country was like blues, but very major key oriented. And they were experimenting Mm -hmm. with steel licks. So as a guitar player, it was completely fascinating and it was mind-boggling and eye-opening to go, this is a country gig? Because this seems like a, a smorgasbord of do whatever you want on your guitar gig, right? It's <laughs> a perfect guitar perfect. player gig. So mm-hmm. I've met this other guy and he said, hey, there's come to see me play and uh, I'll let you sit in. And I had never played in a country band and I was probably 25, 24. So I went in, a guy named was Gary Hanley and he was the guitar player in this band and he would say, hey, go play a couple. He was very nice to me and he let me sit in and I used to go there so much that like they played like Wednesday through Saturday or something like that. So, you know, Wednesday or Thursday night, there was not many people in the bar. So like the third set, Wednesday, Thursday night, he go go up there and play, and the and the guy that ran the band, the lead singer, he didn't care. So I learned this band's material because Gary let me sit in so much. And one day he called and he goes, "Hey man, I got another gig. I can't do it. Do you want to cover for me?" And I was like, "Whoa, man, play the whole." It was mm-hmm. like it was big. It was a big deal. Big deal. Yeah, the whole yeah. show, yeah. Like, four whoa. sets. Mm-hmm. Big deal. So I went in there. I sat in. I did okay. The guys were happy. I was happy that they were happy. Blah blah blah. And Gary Hanley was. And Gary's up north somewhere. I don't know if he's in Oregon or not. But anyway, I got to see him and thank him, which was great for me. But um, uh, he was a big catalyst, and he got me on stage. And then I just started looking for a country gig. It was like, just country music is great. I can. Cause I was a good blues player by then, but I was totally illiterate, completely illiterate. And I started on a trek first to find a band and to play, and to quit working in factories and you know warehouses or whatever I was doing. <clears throat> and um, I had gotten married. I had a son. I was struggling, trying to make, trying to pay bills. And uh, I got, I went to, I was always going to the guitar stores looking for vintage guitars and stuff, and hanging out. And I went to a store, I don't think, might have been the Guitar Center at the time in its infancy, and there was a poster on the wall, and basically it was, it was an ad for uh, Guitar Institute of Technology, but it was an ad for a seminar with Howard Roberts, a guitar seminar. And the way they explained it, it was like, this guitar seminar, three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Howard Roberts, da, da, da. and I knew who Howard Roberts was, I wasn't necessarily a fan of his playing. He played pretty far over my head. He was played jazz, bebop, played anything, you know, classical, television scores, movie scores, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So now I was like 27 and I was a really good blues player, getting to be a pretty good country player, but totally illiterate musically, illiterate. And I re- and I like yeah, I was hungry. I was hungry, <laughs> man. I want. To, I want. What do I need to do? Because I was playing harmonica and guitar, and I had. I had to make a choice. It's like, well, if you play harmonica and try to get great at it, you're still limited. There's so many things you need, and you're not going to be the first choice to get into a band. But if you play guitar, a lot more opportunities. And I was good at both instruments, so I decided to concentrate on the guitars. And I was trying to study. I tried to take a couple of lessons that were not very fruitful. So I went to the Guitar Roberts seminar while I was working at the hip little music store. And I went to the seminar, it was a three-day seminar with Howard Roberts. And you probably you might be too young to have experienced this, but we had a we had a Christian awakening. In in the country some years ago, where people were trying to convert you to some sort of Christianity and throw your drugs away, I'm,
0: fam- and- I'm familiar with that uh, okay. time period. Yeah, I right. wasn't there for it, I mean, but I know there was about a
1: big it. deal mm-hmm. where somebody said, "I converted Dylan. Dylan's going to my church," and it was, and they had bands at the church, and everybody was playing anyway. So, and I had a couple of friends that that you know that got hooked up with some Christian zealots. And then they would call me up and go, "Hey man, I can't hang out with you anymore." And I'd go, "What? I can't hang out with you, man? I flushed all my drugs down the toilet and and uh, and I'm and and but the funny thing was, I didn't I didn't drink or take drugs. It was like, well, yeah, actually you <laughs> actually you can hang out with me, but it's okay if you don't want to. But they had gotten on this trip, like they'd gone away for a weekend, got baptized, got you know bathed in the spirit and all the blah 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 blah. So the reason I'm telling you this
0: and they just assumed you were yes, doing drugs because I was, you were a part a guitar of it. player
1: and i okay, and i didn't well, even sure. and, I, <laughs> and, I, and i and they were they were friends that i'd played music with but i'd never done drugs with them so I was like mm-hmm. well what you know what's the motivation here i, I we've never done drugs together <laughs> but they were such zealots that they wanted to like they were on fire with like the parameters of what they needed to do and how they needed to do it so the reason I'm telling you this is that I had that experience, but only with a Howard Roberts seminar. <laughs> it was like I came away from the seminar and um, the uh, I went to the, the, the guitar store on Monday after the seminar and the bass player that had invited me to the country gig said, hey, I heard you went to the Howard Roberts seminar. How was it? And I go, Bob? I know everything there is to know about music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's all figured out. And he goes, oh, "Ah, yeah. bull." And I go, "Really? Ask me anything." Now, what actually had happened? What actually had happened was was um, I'd basically hung out with a master carpenter, and he unfolded all the tools, showed me what they were, and how to use them. Was I adept at using them? No. Did I know what they were called? Yes. Did I know how they were used? Yes. Now I had to practice using them, but I, but I knew everything. Right. I You know, music can be distilled down. There's only twelve notes. There's four diminished chords. You know. There's four augmented chords. You know. It's like it it it, it can be very simple <laughs> depending on how it's taught. Um. Consequently, um. I knew every. I felt I knew everything about music, and uh, I had these five pamphlets with about five or six or seven pieces of paper in them, stapled together. And it was the Howard Roberts seminar, and it was totally amazing. Everything taught in a in a way. Um, if you don't know who Howard Roberts was, uh, he was kind of part of the wrecking crew, and he was uh, he was a heavy cat, and he was a heavy thinker. And whether you like his music or not, um, he was a genius at curriculum. And the curriculum that he mm-hmm. thought up on teaching you how to play guitar was brilliant. It was true genius. And he had a lot of so, so uh, kind of psychological reasons why he did certain things and taught you in a certain fashion. So it was a, it was an amazing time for me. So there was no school at the time. It was just a seminar. And I found it hard for me to, apply myself by myself and there was no teacher that says hi i'm joe i teach the howard and robert seminar class it was like there wasn't anything like that so um I, it was hard for me to stick with the program on my own about a year later maybe mm-hmm. a little more than a year they started git guitar institute of technology and it took me six months, but then I was like, I'm going there. Now, I was like 28 at the time, maybe 28 and a half or something. And I think it was like 2500 bucks or something like that. Anyway, Pat Hicks ran it. Howard Roberts wrote the curriculum. Howard Roberts was there. Uh, what year was it? It was like 7980. that era. Um, we had Tommy Tedesco. Uh, Larry Carlton, Greg Matheson, uh, Pat Messini—all these cats would come in and do do seminars, and and it was a it was a school, and you had two you had two classes and two labs, five days a week for a year, and the year was cut up into four mm-hmm. semesters, and it was sort of like your four years of college. So each you had your you didn't have electives, but you had. You know, it was divided up in a logical fashion. And it was the most amazing time that I ever spent learning music. And plus you meet people. I find that learning in a group is better than learning by yourself. So you would go into a class, discuss something, and then um, you would have a lab. And in the lab, you would have a lab partner. That was yours for the whole school year. But you'd have other guys that you had like like mind with, and they'd go, let's go in this room and let's play today's lesson. And so what I didn't understand, maybe you understood. What you what you didn't understand, maybe I understood. And or brains are different. Maybe I would look at it and go, man, I could use this in a country song where you're looking at it like you could use it in a bebop song. So it was a great incredibly great time for me to learn music and it's it's been it it continues to open like a flower for me um every time i pick up the instrument i learn something and and mm-hmm. this was in 1978
0: it sounds like something i need i've uh i am also like the most musically illiterate person on the planet i know what i like to play and i and i play you know, and I've I've actually gotten a lot better in the last few years as I've gotten to, you know, do this full time and spend way more time with the instrument. But I still have no idea what I'm doing most of the time, and uh, it sounds kind of weird because I'm like, they're they're like, what? How'd you do that? How'd you do that? I actually had somebody uh, message me and and ask me to do a video on how I write riffs, and I'm right. I'm like, um, I picked the guitar up. And they come out <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> so there's I, some bliss. There's some bliss in that. Mm-hmm. There is some bliss in that mm-hmm. that you don't want to lose.
0: Yeah, sure, but I, I think it would be it would be helpful to expand the vocabulary outside of. Uh, that's a C shape, and that's a G shape, and I think that's a fifth. Um, maybe.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, it helps because it helps you expand. Once you play, Howard Roberts would always say, learn to play something, then play it everywhere on the neck. Mm, mm -hmm. So play it low, play it high, play it on the fat strings, play it on the skinny strings, you know. And then he would play certain riffs that were, because the guitar is a grid. It's lines up and down and crisscross, right? Mm -hmm. So he would play certain, like, patterns. He would draw out a pattern, and he'd go, play this pattern like X's or something. And so you'd go, oh, yeah, I understand, pattern." Because guitar is patterns, um, mm-hmm. and so you'd play it, and then you go, you know what, you know, you know why I play that, and then be like, kids would go, no, why? because I like how it sounds. I don't want you to think about. You know, I can tell you why why you like it. I can tell you what the notes are, but that's not important. What's important is you played something that you like, and you contained your innocence when playing it. So he was he was a pretty amazing dude. Wow, that sounds like an incredible experience. Yes, it was. Mm
2: -hmm. Hi, I'm Vincent, and I'm here to talk about the The Maris Mercury X. X. My dad's always going on and on about how cool Maris is. He really went off on one about the Mercury X the other day. He said something about a 4,800-hertz sample rate and 99 preset locations and 33 banks and something along the lines of the most advanced reverb pedal ever devised by man? That's all true, but I only care about one thing. This pedal sounds sick. So make sure you check out the Mercury X and all the other fine products at Marist.us, as well as fine retailers worldwide. Alright, Dad, all now right. can I have my Pocky...
0: How exactly do artists get their music on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, Tidal, all these services? How in the world do you get your music there? Well, in the past, you had to use something called a record label. But these days, you can use DistroKid. DistroKid is the absolute easiest way to get your music up on streaming services. And it's the most affordable way to do so. Not only do plans start at $22.99 for the entire year, that's less than 2 bucks a month, DistroKid also does not take a cut of your streaming revenue, unlike some other services out there. Even better if you sign up by going to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. That's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. One more time, that's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. You'll get 30% off. That's right, 30% off. They're already extremely reasonable prices. So go to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid and get your music out there. We are brought to you today by Sweetwater, specifically the gear exchange. You may have heard about this. This is a place where you can go to buy and sell your used gear. Maybe you got a pedal over there that's just kind of collecting dust. Maybe there's something you've been eyeing from the Sweetwater catalog. Well, right now is a great time to turn that unused gear into something you're actually going to use. Even better, if you sell on the gear exchange, you can keep 100% of the sale as long as you choose a Sweetwater gift card as your payout method. That is not too shabby, because let's be honest, most of this buying and selling we do is just to fun new gear purchases. And that is a great way to reach a wide variety of customers and keep 100% in your pocket, or rather, on your pedal board. So go check out the Sweetwater Gear Exchange and turn that unused gear into something that's actually going to help you write that next huge riff. So supposedly this is a sort of a a, a guitar gear show in in theory. Uh, that's at least what I tell people to get them to listen to it. And you've had your hands on some of the you know cream of the crop vintage instruments, you know, especially during that time period. And then was it weird to see the shift from these are just guitars to whoa, this is a you know pre-CBS Fender, blah blah blah. Like when did that occur, and what did that look like? when did the collectors come in and kind of change the market um,
1: when i started working at that little guitar store well music store it was called betton and music um the vintage guitar market was in its infancy mm-hmm. so people were starting to figure out about serial numbers and eras but the, you know, you think about it that was like 1960 let's say it was 1968 or 1970 or 1971 the electric the electric guitar and the amplifier was was in its infancy as well
0: mm-hmm.
1: i mean you know you're talking about a, a 55 tweed fender basement that was 1955 it's less than 20 years later we're talking about the collectability of that instrument. So wow. It was de- definitely in its infancy uh, and starting to grow slowly. But basically because of the baby boomers, which I'm a baby boomer, we were a giant like tsunami wave that kind of roared through the millennium of time because we were a giant group of consumers. Mm-hmm. And we were consumers at every age period. So at 17 or 18... We were consuming movies, and and we, we, you know, going starting to go to festivals and things of that nature. Um, and and as far as musicians go, uh, there was a larger group of people because of the group of the because of the age group, the generation that were consuming instruments. Mm-hmm. So it just grew. It, you know, the demand grew. And uh, people started looking for better and better instruments. And nine times out of 10, the better instruments were older instruments that were made by hand. Now, not every one of them was a good guitar. I've had, I had a 55 Esquire that was not a good guitar. I've had some older Fender guitars that were not, and, and Gibson's that were not great guitars, but your, your chance to get a great guitar would be, looking for a used one you possibly would find one and everyone was finding their holy grail you know the the, whatever they were looking for trying to find the ultimate and then the parameters of what was you know why was this why was pre you know why was the fender good because it was pre-cbs and what's pre-cbs well cbs bought fender and they started you know cutting back on this and cutting back on that. They they just started changing the way the instruments were made. So that happened to Gibson. That happened. It happened to everybody mm-hmm. because, you know, corporations started buying up profits of individually owned businesses.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then it's interesting. So more came from these are the good ones because there's more good ones from this era, and that just sort of almost fed into the mythology of it all. And now fast forward to now, and a lot of people – you know, myself included, like, oh, that's a fifties whatever, uh, and they just start getting excited before they've even played it, you know, because just because it's old. Um, yeah, it's there. You
1: know what? I went to the Dallas Guitar Show a few years ago, and I realized the way they, they were selling the guitars that really it was an antique show, mm-hmm. and the value of the instruments was because there's only so many of them. So it wasn't like I'm going to buy a twenty five thousand dollar Fifty nine maple neck Strat and go play it on my gig. That ain't going to happen. Probably uh, not. That, no, I'm not taking a, a 25000 thirty thousand dollar guitar out to the bar and play. No, <laughs> you know. Um, but with the advent of computers, being able to cut wood, um, and there's a thing called a CNC machine, mm-hmm. which is a giant computerized machine. It cuts every guitar perfectly so these newer guitars they're incredible they are absolutely they're great you don't need to buy you know you don't need to buy a 59 stratocaster you can buy something new rig it up yourself you can buy a 1500 one you can buy a tom anderson you know 2500 one they're perfect guitars they're great instruments mm-hmm. so there's plenty of great instruments To be bought and they're new. They're newer. Uh, You know,
0: the beautiful thing, and I'm sure this is that you've experienced this too, even from when I was a kid. You know, I I was growing up playing, you know, learning about guitars in the 90s. And back then, Squires were terrible. And and now they're, I mean, yeah, there are very low end ones that you can get at Walmart or whatever, and they're a little hit or miss, but largely Squires are great now. Like a $400 Squire is pretty impressive like compared yep. to what they used to be
1: Yep, you the can lo- and the re- and the retro part market is unbelievable Hmm. oh yeah you know and you can have somebody build you a guitar that looks like a beat-up vintage guitar but it's perfect
0: but exactly everything's just dialed in exactly how you would want it but it feels old yep do you know mm-hmm. who mark jenny is i know the name i can't okay think well of who they're, that is.
1: they're in missouri and they build They'll build you a, a, a fifty nine telly that looks just like a fifty nine telly, and it'll be beat up and worn out and play perfectly.
0: That's awesome. That's yeah. so killer.
1: So it's it th- that that part of it is amazing.
0: So I want to get into uh, how you got to playing with Dwight at some point, but since we're on this topic of conversation, I want to, and you you have perfect experience to have this question bounced off of you. I think that personally just looking back in time now is possibly the best time ever to be a guitar player from a gear perspective uh, across the
1: uh the spectrum do you agree with that i think i think as far as like having access to great equipment and and having access to learning tools like being able to slow stuff down keep it in the same key plenty of people showing you how to play yeah it's a total amazing time the sad part is that the music is just not being supported the same way there's not enough clubs to play there's mm-hmm. not I don't I don't trust the economics of our country or the world to have to cr- create that va- can, or to protect the value of music, they don't care about. It. It's become like tissue paper, mm-hmm. and so that part is alarming. And I don't know anybody. You know, I don't know exactly how they're going to like. Um, you can't force a generation to to pick up the slack and say, you know, I'm going to start playing Merle Haggard songs, or I'm going to start playing, you know, Cream songs, or I'm going to start playing Albert King, or whatever. It, it's cultural. It just it is the way it is. It just happens. So that part kind of worries me that it that nobody's picking up the slack the way I would like to see it.
0: Yeah, i I think if I was to go back about eight years ago, I would have been a little more pessimistic on that front. But I am feeling a, I'm feeling a little bit better. Uh, maybe that's just because I was just at a great country show. Um, but. I was on country music in particular. I'm a big fan of it, and I was, I was pretty, pretty upset, really, in the uh, 2010s. I would say, uh, things, things were just. It felt like it. It felt very much like throwaway culture, in a yes, lot of ways. Exactly. I, and I didn't feel like I feel like there was lip service being paid to the the legends, but I don't know that it was it was a genuine appreciation the way that uh a lot of people from my generation grew up having uh having grown up with a lot of that music. Right. And uh, and but now there seems to be a lot of guys and girls from 25 to, you know, 37 that really seem to uh have embraced it, you know?
1: Yeah. Um I hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope so. I I I I would like to have the uh, faith that you have. I hope so. <laughs> but um,
0: so going back to the Dwight days, I, mean, I feel like that's where you really became more of a household name with guitar players.
1: Yes. How, well, how did that happen? Well, we finished off where I was illiterate. Then I went to GIT. I started learning how to play. And understand music and during that whole time I was playing country bars and getting a little better gigs with a little better bands and but I was basically my whole period of the year that I was at at GIT um, I was playing in clubs so I would go every almost every night you know four nights a week five nights a week whatever it was and I would play from nine to 130 mm-hmm. four sets so I'm up there going silver wings and I'm playing it in thirds I'm doing my guitar lessons. You know, it was perfect. You know, Thursday Mm -hmm. night in a bar, playing silver wings in a country bar, there's nobody there. There's, you know, it's half full, less than half full. And you can I wasn't doing anything that was odd. I was just practicing. Mm -hmm. So I had a lesson that day. I got to play it for four hours that night in front of people. So it was it was an incredible time for me to learn and to keep learning and um uh during that time period right after I got out of uh, GIT was it like 1981 maybe and um I met I actually got a good really good gig with really good musicians at an amusement park called Knott's Berry Farm and it was a step up because the gig ended at 11:30. You weren't playing a smoky bar. You got paid better because you got paid better. The leader could hire better musicians. So I I was in a really good band with good musicians and all of the musicians that were in that band, because we were in our thirties subsequently went on to do really great things in music. So Mm -hmm. it bore, it bore fruit that these guys were great players. And when you're in a group with great players, you play harder, you want to learn, you don't want to be the guy left out. So consequently, um, I met Dwight through a mutual musician, through a steel player named Boo Bernstein. And he said, oh, you should hear this guy. He's got some songs. He's written some songs. He's a country guy, da-da-da-da-da. So I went to hear him play. And uh, or actually, he needed I, – I, I, no, I got a tape. He said, give me a tape. I got a tape of his song because I'm learning something. We're going to do a gig, a cassette tape and he told me that jerry mcgee was the guitar player on the tape now jerry mcgee was in the ventures for many years famous guitar player and he was a guy that i hadn't really you know i'd heard albert lee i'd heard this guy that guy but i hadn't heard a lot of jerry mcgee so i was like let me get the tape i want to hear this guy play so my motivation was to hear the guitar player and the guitar was great. But in doing that, I heard these songs and they were original and they were really good country songs. And I'm like, who's this guy mm-hmm. writing, writing new. Cause I wasn't working with anybody that was writing new great country songs. So consequently, that's how I first got introduced to him. Dwight had a, had a falling out with Jerry McGee over a girl okay. and, and he needed a guitar player to play a gig. And, um, he, uh, Called me up and he used a steel player, friend of mine, Boo Bernstein, and some other guys. And he said, "We're going to go play this gig." The drummer was George Green. George Green's son is Brian Austin Green from Beverly Hills Nine. Okay. So you know it's like right. it's, crazy, it's crazy how the years go on and things, and and you realize who was who and what was what. But Thank anyway, um, we went and played this gig, and I got to learn his material. And then he said, "You know, I'm gonna. I, I haven't been playing much lately. I was staying with my dad in Louisville, and I'm, move, I'm living here in LA, and I want to start playing bars again. Do you want to do some playing?" And it was only going to be a four piece. So he played acoustic, I played electric bass and drums, and I said, "Yeah, sure. I'm I'm up for playing. I'm a play to, I play with anybody, anytime, anywhere. You know, blah blah blah." So we started getting gigs together. Um, as a four-piece,
0: and I started mm-hmm.
1: learning his music because we played a lot of his. We played. He had. He had about twenty, no, uh, well, about seventeen really good original songs at that time, okay. and so we, I started getting a grip of the arrangements and and started arranging them as well while I was playing because well, they were just bashing through, you know, on a country gig. Mm-hmm. So um, that's really how I got started. Was 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 you doing it that way you know
0: right right and then that that just like it hit at the right time i feel like similarly during that time frame i think there was a craving for you know more traditional country music similar to what there is right now um and i guess that's probably where my optimism lies because you know you guys took off like a rocket after that it was, just, <laughs> it, it was insane um and we're seeing some some of that now with a a fella named uh, Zach Bryan. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but um, he's filling up stadiums now. Uh, Zach, a, Zach. Zach Bryan. Brown? Bryan. Brian? Bryan. Oh, I don't yeah. know
1: him. I know Zach Brown.
0: Yeah, Zach Bryan is a newer guy. He's like oh. 27, I want to say something like that. He oh, was in the cool. military, blew up on on social media, and he came and played about 15 minutes from my house here last summer. And no joke, there was. 30,000 people there just for him. It was crazy. Nice. Yeah. Zach
1: Bryan.
0: Zach Bryan. Yeah. He's got, he's a good songwriter. Um, and he's got a crazy good band with him. It's not as apparent on the records, but what them live, they just, they just kill it. They're just shred. Um, so that's pretty, it's a, maybe that's where my, my optimism is coming from is seeing, seeing that really take hold with people, you know? That's awesome.
1: I don't yeah. know about that guy. I'm gonna look him up.
0: Yeah, he's pretty good, and and uh, there's there's a lot of the newer cats coming up. Uh, Jesse Daniel is the guy I just saw here this weekend or this week. Uh, sounds like he just came right out of Bakersfield. You know, really? it's yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty encouraging.
1: If you remember, would you text me the names of these guys? Sure thing.
0: Yeah. When, when
1: we're done, just text me.
0: Yeah. I don't think I have your number but I'll get it from Karen.
1: Yeah, that like, would be great. I'd love to love to check in on them and see see what they're about. I love that stuff.
0: My well my wife is you know I'm I'm definitely like a a fan of all that but I'm I'm a I'm kind of a punk rock and metal guy primarily. Yeah. And and uh, my wife is very plugged into what's going on in the the new, I would say, independent country music scene. So she f- keeps me posted on on what's hot. So <laughs> wow,
1: well, yeah. I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear anybody you suggest. Uh, I will. I'll get
0: a good list from her too. I Tyler Childers. Have you heard of Ty- Tyler Tyler. I've heard
1: of him. But I don't know his music, but I've heard his name. It's incredible songwriting, like
0: just great. Absolutely, actually, make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. It's, I'm excited. It's, I'm excited. Yeah. I'll, I'll shoot you i I'll shoot you a list. Great. For sure.
1: I love that. I
0: don't know where I was going with that. Where was I going with that topic? Oh yeah. Well, similarly, like I feel like kind of in that eighties period, there was sort of, everything was getting a little bit, uh, popified, you know, and kind of putting the, the sheen of chorus pedals, uh, over everything in every genre, but Dwight and and yourself, that, that stuff, I feel like really hit a, it really filled a need. That I think was there at the time.
1: I, the the public liked it, but they weren't being marketed to. You know, um, there was marketing over substance was classic. Uh, Urban Cowboy made a dent in in the creating a bigger population to buy the music, but nobody was servicing it. They certainly didn't want us to do it. I mean, we made an independent EP uh, that kind of caught fire, and we were kind of happily lumped in with the blasters and los lobos as mm-hmm. part of that la group and they were ahead of us as far as having notoriety and they kind of took us under their wing and we did some a handful of gigs with them that really was was uh, uh i don't know what to say it was really was a catalyst for us mhm so wow i can't believe how the
0: time has flown by we haven't even talked about your book yet to introduce you to your new best friend, the Chase Bliss Audio, Lossy. Lossy is a collaboration between Chase Bliss and Good well, It's meant to give you some control over those weird digital artifacts
1: that come with every compressed audio. You're getting it right now.
0: the changes that are taking place are strictly coming from my playing dynamics. I'm just interacting with the pedal and letting it do its thing. And some true stereo goodness. If you'd like some more details about lossing,
1: I invite you to head over to chaselessaudio.com going
0: to like what you found. All right, Pete, we are back. We had to take yeah. a, a uh, this was an interesting little break we had to take. So we were getting ready to talk about your book. You realized a bunch of time sensitive stuff popped up. Old friends are stopping by and you've ma- <laughs> you managed to swing back in to uh, wrap up the podcast and, and do a little bit of Patreon action as well. So I appreciate that.
1: Absolutely. Well, once I found out we're in the same time zone, it worked better for me. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure, for sure. So we kind of left off talking about your book. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think we should we should highlight that for the listeners because that's something they want to know. Okay. And then, uh, well, then I got a couple classic questions that I wrap the podcast up on, and uh, we can slide over to Patreon and see what kind of shenanigans we can pull
1: off there. All right. Well, um, the book was the book was, you know, I've done lots of interviews, obviously, through the end of my career, and it made me think in a logical fashion how I make a record because you know people would ask me, and I would say, well, we do this, we do that, or interviewing with an artist, and they would say, you know, how do you make records? And you want to you want to disclose as much as you can. Sure. Because I found I found. Picking, picking a producer, I think, is a daunting task for an artist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you pick a producer, to be honest with you. You know, you might say to me, Oh, uh, you made a record with the Meat Puppets. And I go, Yeah. And I go, I love what you did with the Meat Puppets. It's like, How do you know what I did? <laughs> right. You didn't see me work. <laughs> you know, I'm not, not being insulting or arrogant, but you didn't, you know, in the case of the Meat Puppets, all I did was edit in someone else's case, you you could say, you know, Hey, uh, I like the record you did, or, you know, um, this record you did wasn't as good as the other ones. And I would say like, are you out of your mind? I did everything. I played every instrument. I did everything I could, you know, (laughs) there's no way to know what somebody does. And if you have a, a set way that you do things, I guess electronically, like I always use this microphone, I always use this 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 specific thing. Then, then people kind of go, "Yeah, you got a sound." Mm-hmm. But if I don't recommend that for producing records, I don't recommend having a quote unquote sound. I don't think that's something you you long you you want to have. Um, so, how does somebody pick a producer? I always sympathize with that, and um, I. Did interviews and and talked to artists about how I make records. And then I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to write a book about it. Because I used to do guitar seminars, and I used to enjoy, like I'd be on the road playing gigs and stuff, especially post Dwight when I was touring on my own. Mm -hmm. And so you want to do a guitar seminar? And I go, yeah, yeah, because I liked being in a room full of guitar players with their guitars you know 5 10 15 20 people whatever asking me guitar questions and and we talk and this, and then I'll say you play this I'll play that and I liked explaining it in that situation but I did it oddly enough I started doing seminars I, I wrote a set list like I would for a gig and so I'd have like a little set list at my feet of what I wanted to accomplish during this during the Guitar seminar, what I what information I wanted to impart and talk about. And um, I did the same thing for producing. So I sat down and I did an outline. I mean, this has been in the works for eight years. Now, I haven't been writing the book every day for eight years, mm-hmm. but it's it's a thought of mine. For at least eight years, I'm going to write a book on how to produce a record. And partly because there is no book written from a musician's perspective on how to produce a record. If you and I were going to music school, let's say, and we walked by the billboard uh, by the bulletin board one day and you said, hey, check this out. There's going to be a class here on record production. And I would say, yeah, that's cool. Well, we're both guitar players. We both like making our own music. Maybe we could go and check out this class on record production. That might be fun. And you said, yeah. So you and I go to the class. We enroll. We get in there. The first day, the guy goes and he grabs the board. and He goes, OK, Fader 1. Uh, 10 dB at five, five kilohertz. That'd <laughs> be like, dude, I'm out of here. Right. <laughs> I'm not, I don't, there's nothing I need to know about technical. I'll hire an engineer. I want to know how to produce a record. And that would be the, the, the point where, okay, how do I talk about what I do? Because I don't touch the board. I can, but I don't, mm-hmm. and I don't, and I can speak and I can speak somewhat in technical terms because I learned on the fly, but I don't, I'll, I'll speak more in, in broad terms of like, you know, it needs to be wetter. It needs to be drier. It needs to be browner. It needs to be, you know, bluer, mm-hmm. uh-huh. whatever, Yeah. whatever you need to get across your point. Um, and so I started cataloging it in my brain and then I decided to sit down and kind of do like an old-fashioned um, outline where I do like Roman numeral one and then big A, then little a, and, you know, da-da-da-da-da, subject. And I ended up with, you know, the chapters, those Roman numeral one through 12 or whatever it is were the chapters. And then COVID hit. Yeah. And COVID hit, and I had all kinds of time on my hands. And once all of us, and I'm sure you experienced too, we all were in a panic, like, what do we do? Mm -hmm. I mean, do we do we talk? We can't even talk to our friends. We all just locked ourselves in our houses for months. So once myself and Kevin, my assistant got over the shock of like, okay, we can wear masks, hang out together. We're not going to get sick. We've both been vaccinated. We're okay. Um, I said, let's write the book. So I bought this computer program called Dragon and you wear a headset and you talk into the computer and it prints out your words and the more you talk to it the more it gets to know your voice it's kind of scary it's like a ai Mm -hmm. you know and it gets to know who you are and it gets to be more accurate but kevin was good enough to sit there and type so i would take a topic and start from the beginning and and just pontificate, you know, two or three or four paragraphs on this topic. Then he would go back and go glitched here, fix this, fix that, fix this. So we did it that way. And then I hired an editor, and I was lucky enough to hire Mike Melenda. Now, Mike Melenda, if you don't know, was the editor of Guitar Player magazine for over twenty years. Very nice. So he's a monster, monster editor, like incredible. And actually the guy that did the artwork for me was recommended by Mike. He was the art director at Guitar Player for many years. So the cover kind of looks like Guitar Player magazine, which is cool. The artwork is amazing and the layout is amazing. So so those two guys really did a gigantic yeoman's job on this. And Mike is a musician. He's a drummer and a guitar player. So when he read what I was talking about, he understood what I was saying, you know, even if it was a little weird and he could straighten it out. Sure. So his editing is gigantically important in this book. He, he did an incredible job. So we did it. We, we plotted through, we got it done. We reread it. We proofread it. We proofread it. We proofread it, sent it back, printed it, got, you know, got the glitches out, got everything as good as we possibly could so that, you could go to Amazon and digitally download it. You could download it to your Kindle. You can actually buy a hardware book. Mm-hmm. Amazon, I didn't know this, but they will make one book at a time. Yes. Man. I don't know how they do it, but it's amazing and they'll make one book at a time. My
0: sister's in so, that biz, so yeah, I it's crazy okay. how cool that is. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like who's on the phone, Blake? What does he want? He wants a book. Hey, Blake wants one of Pete's books. (laughs) (laughs) The guy goes in the back room and he goes, he hits a button and he comes back. Here, where do we send it? I'll send it to Blake's house. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of kooky, but anyway. So, I'm just the the actual release date is the first Tuesday of May. Okay. And Karen's my publicist, and I've got a Maggie Rainwater is my social media gal, and I got Kevin working with me, and so we're. We're venturing into how to put out a book and talking to guys like yourself and talking about the book and hoping that we can get out to reach people that, you know, have some interest And in, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a philosophy that works, whether it's at home recording, on a laptop, garage band. Or in a big studio with, you know, five guys and string section, horn section, whatever you need. Mm -hmm. The process of organizing that and organizing it in a proper fashion is always pretty much the same and should be because it's going to save you money in the long run if you do if you do step 3 before step 2 and then you and and you got done with step 1 and you said oh I jumped to step 3 you're going to probably run into some problems either with tuning or technical problems or something that you didn't think of if you didn't do it in the right order right because you've done it before <laughs> I'm, yeah it's you know I, it's like I'm saying, it's like it's like it's kind of like if you called me up and said, Hey Pete, I want you to put in a jacuzzi grotto swimming pool in my backyard. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I go, and tell me how much it'll cost and what it'll look like. And I'll go, Blake, do you know how many jacuzzi, uh, hot tub swimming pool grottos I've put in my life? 200. So here's the drawing. Here's exactly what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. And here's exactly what it's going to cost. So I've had the luxury of, you know, operating under those circumstances so that I can kind of take the mystery out of it, at least to some degree that, you know, that you know the process. Cause a lot of people are like, what's a producer, what does he do? And, and it's actually a misnomer because I talk about it in the book, um, when recording got started, um there were there wasn't engineers. We didn't need an engineer. There wasn't that much technical stuff going on. Right. It was a mixer. It was a guy that could mix some microphones because they were all in the same room and balance everybody out and actually move people physically. Like you sit in this corner, you face this way, the mic's here. Okay. And then the producer was actually You didn't need a producer you needed an arranger because you wanted to make all the parts work like the buddy holly records right how they all work together and it's the parts work together and the mixer works together and so it was really a mixer and an arranger
0: and it's it's interesting how the the term has evolved too right because now there's people who do things like what you've done with full bands and everything but also if you talk to a hip-hop person their view of what a producer is, is completely different. The producer comes with the full beat and the rapper goes over the top of that, you know, oftentimes, right. not every time, obviously, but that's very, very common. And they're known as a producer as well. I remember growing up and being into music and hearing that term producer and hearing all these different ter- different terms thrown around. I'd hear metal guys do it this way. And Rick Rubin does it like pretty hands off, more philosophical things and like all these other you know, methods I was literally growing up being, what is a producer? What is a producer? What does that even mean? And now I have a a better handle on on the fact that it's it's a bit nebulous and it really depends on who you're talking to.
1: It can be Yeah. It can be nebulous and there's three I've categorized three types of producers. One is a musicologist. That would be John Hammond Sr. who discovered Bob Dylan and Mm -hmm. Bruce Springsteen and all these other, you know, Bessie Smith, Charlie Christian. He was a musicologist. He had a record collection. So he could take experienced quality musicians to his house and play records and talk to them intelligently about recordings because he'd listened. He couldn't play them. couldn't play the instruments but he could say well the second solo in solo flight charlie christian did this and listen to what he does and he could explain it and point it out then the second kind is the engineer producer and that's usually a guy that's an engineer that's got a little bit of creative chops he's usually a can be a friend of the band or the band has a guy a motivated kind of leader of the band that's got a strong will that can work with the engineer And then there's the the musician producer, which is what I am. Mm -hmm. And my thing is that I've been out on the floor with headphones on with people demanding certain things of me. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be out of tune, in tune, make a mistake, not make a mistake, get my fellow musicians to play properly, try to get things in one take, things of that nature. And I think that the the, the moniker for me of a producer is wrong. I think it should be called a director. So if oh, you understand yeah. what a director of a film does, you'll understand what, a, what I do as a producer. So a director hires a cinematographer. I hire an engineer. The director looks for locations. I find the studio, I'm the producer, I find the studio. The director casts the actors. I pick the musicians if it's a solo artist, and so on down the line. So I think you really look at it like a director. You're more of a director of people and coalescing together to to create a successful project.
0: I love that. That is a great analogy. I don't think I've heard anybody explain it that way, even though some people take a similar approach. I really enjoyed that. That's very, very cool. I'm really excited about this book. I got got one coming, and uh, I was just checking the the calendar while we were talking, and it's gonna drop the day after this uh, episode comes out. So perfect. Timing. Oh great, yeah, great. So yeah, uh, this episode comes out, and then the the book should be out the day after. So there we go. Uh, yeah, we'll
1: sell we'll sell thousands of books after they hear about this podcast.
0: That's right, that's right. <laughs> this is a great episode. Thank you for coming on. I really really enjoyed this conversation a lot.
1: Thank you. It was Mm -hmm. fun. Yeah.
0: Well, I've got two classic questions to wrap up on before we go to Patreon and uh, Patreons were for the supporters of this show, get a little extra content and we'll, we'll make sure we give them some, some goods over there. But before we get to that, I, I like to ask my classic questions and we'll go ahead and wrap this up. If that's cool with you. Sure. All right. First one. What is your favorite boss pedal?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, first of all, you'd have to go back to uh, you, you know Premier Guitar, and they have that. Uh, is it Rig Roundup? Yeah, Rig Rundown. Yeah, rig, rig, rig Rundown. You'd have to look at my my performance guitar rig rig rundown because it's kind of funny. Um, I was in Nashville playing a show, and um, I forget the forget the guy's name. The John Bollinger, he was Mm -hmm. interviewing me. So John Bollinger, and we were kind of backstage, and he's like, okay, Pete, so we're ready to start Rig Rundown? I said, yeah, let's talk. Let's do it. So he clicked, put the camera on, he said, all right, well, first off, I guess, he said, what's in your rack? What, what, what gear do you have in your rack? (laughs) And I said, I said, well, John, I don't have a rack. I just play straight into the amplifier, but can we still do the interview? (laughs) (laughs) And he was cracking up and I had, I had a kind of an extensive little rig. I had two pods and a power amp, but classically the Nashville guys have racks. Yeah, for sure. Racks of stuff. But I do have a favorite Boss pedal, and there's a story attached to it. Perfect. I'm on the road with the white. I'm using two Blackface Fender Deluxes that have been heavily modded, and I've got EV speakers. I've got mm-hmm. a good, rich volume pedal. I've got a modified by, uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, he ended up building a bunch of amplifiers. Anyway, Oh, Paul Rivera, I've got a modified boss oh, yeah. chorus by Paul Rivera, nice. volume pedal, my telly, and I've got an Echoplex, and the Echoplex is in an effects loop only on one of the two amplifiers, and I'm playing, and the Echoplex takes a crap i'm on the road i'm on tour and it's the early days of yokum and we're hot and you know every show is a little better and we're getting more airplay and i don't have my echoplex and i'm like oh god and the band was basically a trio Mm -hmm. it was bass drums and guitar there was a fiddler who you know didn't play rhythm dwight didn't play rhythm he just kind of beat on the acoustics so he was more of a distraction but the trio bass drums and guitar i needed my rig right and so we were, I can't remember what town we were in, in the Midwest somewhere. And I didn't, I hadn't bought a guitar pedal. I can't remember buying a guitar pedal. I go to a music store and I knew I wasn't going to find an old gray tube Echoplex. They didn't exist. They were, sure. yeah. you know, hard to come by. So I go to this show, go to this guitar store and I said, I need a delay pedal. And the guy goes, there's this one, this one, this one, and, and he, got me on the first era of the Purple Boss Digital Delay pedal. Mm-hmm. The earliest era. I, I don't know if it's a DM2 or a DM1. I'm not quite sure.
0: Those, those are and, the uh, the first analog ones, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly.
1: And mm-hmm. So I said, let me plug into that thing. So I plugged in, I tur- turned the to and I went hey, this sounds a lot like my Echoplex. I was really happy. And the Echoplex was in an effects loop, which really saved it, so it didn't load up. Like when you, you hit the volume, it, it wouldn't, it was, the volume was constant in the Echoplex, so it stayed, it wasn't overdriven. Sure. So I bought this DM1 purple Boss Delay, and after that Echoplex finally took the complete crap that it was going to take from being beat up on the road and never made a comeback, I ended up using that thing
0: ah very nice yeah d m two has become a wildly popular and uh one of the most sought after boss pedals out there in the in the year since it's yeah a, i have
1: t- i have two of those and i also have a waza yeah how's the waza compare oh it's awesome it's yeah. it's cause it's got the, it's got the switch on it that takes it from old to older mm, nice very you know, nice. Like I gotta it's, get a- it's it's like the best wa it's the best purple delay you can have and then you can hit the switch and it's the degraded one
0: i love it i love it so yeah. much i'm a i'm a big boss fan over here a listener uh and a very important fella in the tone mob community submitted that i start asking that question years ago <laughs> okay. I think i think around episode 115 and we're on like 350 something now and uh nice. he 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 said you should start asking people that and i've asked it pretty much every time and it's always it's always fun because there's they're such a great company, and they have such a variety of of different offerings that you never know what somebody's going to say. I've heard it. I've heard about every answer. I feel like at this point, but the DM two is a classic. Love have
1: you one. have you seen the silver tone pedal? Uh
0: the um the one made with Jackson Audio, I believe. Yeah.
1: Yes, I've seen it. I've not played it, but I've seen it. That well, I have. A silver tone amplifier which is not the big 212 it's the 112 it's called it was it 1489 1482 mm-hmm. Silvertone. it's a killer i've got it sampled inside one of my pods it's the nice. best slide blues chicago blues it's a killer killer amplifier he made jackson audio made a silver tone pedal that sounds exactly like it
0: Nice.
1: He's figured it out, and I'm not a pedal guy, but I'm gotta say, I got a little jam rig. If I show up at a jam session or something, or I'm playing some place where I'm just one of the guys, I'll bring like that little pedal and the DM2. It's 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 awesome. That's killer. Yeah, I just actually
0: got a a twin twelve from a listener here the last couple months. An amp? uh, Yeah, the amp. Oh, nice. Yeah, let's see if I can. uh, Let's see if I can. I think I can. Let's see. Let's see if I can show you. Uh, oh, there we go over there. <laughs> oh, it's behind the chair. There's Last. the
1: orange. It, oh, I got it, you. It's right yeah. next
0: to the orange there. Yeah, but uh, uh, yeah. I I can't believe it's known for like the crunch tones, right? Generally speaking, yep. but you know what? I
1: love the cleans on that thing. I think there, it sounds great. You know what? If you had to get somebody to make that amplifier, it'd cost you twenty five hundred bucks. Oh, Easily. easily. It's hand wired.
0: Yep. It's all, and there's, there's point a lot going on in those things. I know. Badass. I <laughs> love it. I absolutely love it. All right. Well, before we uh, slide over to Patreon, this is the last question of the podcast. And this is where we get a little bit dicey, a little bit controversial. People okay. And tend to get a little upset uh, sometimes at the answer to this, but. Is it, is it about gun control? It's almost that bad. It's almost <laughs> that bad. Here we go. What's your what's your favorite kind of pizza
1: uh oh people will get mad but pepperoni pineapple oh pineapple see i'm the i'm the i'm the
0: lone ranger out here so people either in my experience they like pineapple on pizza but not, but or they don't like pineapple on pizza right right Right. i'm the guy who doesn't like pineapple on anything <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh good you're yeah, at least yeah. you're honest I'm consistent, right? Like I don't,
1: I. <laughs> I try. I was, I was on the road. I mean, I'm an old man, so these stories all link together. But I was, I grew up in Detroit, okay, mm-hmm. and there was no pineapple on pizza. Let us Detroit just,
0: style pizza making
1: a comeback. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, yeah, the deep dish. So there was, it was just pepperoni, and we. And my mother was Italian, so. We love pepperoni pizza. Couldn't get any. I didn't want no anchovies, no olives. I want pepperoni pizza. Yeah. So I went on the road very young and I went to Canada and I was playing in Canada. We were playing this place and we got off a little bit early. And so we would say, hey, let's go. Let's go out the back door to the motel and we're going to meet some of the locals and we're going to go over to this, this pizza parlor and i think the place was called the purple pickle i know i don't know why i remembered that but i think it was called the purple because this is 40 years ago yeah and so so we go out the back door we go in there and and there's some locals there and it's like we're gonna order a pizza what do you want i said yeah, pepperoni pizzas. we're gonna get a pineapple pepper and i said what they ordered a pineapple pepperoni pizza and i fell in love with it and ever since then it's like pineapple pepperoni pineapple pine- pepperoni
0: pine- pineapple pepperoni from the purple pickle
1: from the Purple Pickle in,
0: <laughs> in British Columbia. All right. I like it. I love it. Unbeli- unbelievable. That's great. What a great plug. That's fantastic. Well, Pete, thank you so much for this episode. This has been tremendous. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think people are going to really like it as well. So,
1: you know, thank, thank you, you again.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll. Thanks we'll, for spending uh, the time. I I would love to do it in person one of these days. That'd be yeah. a lot of fun. I'm here and sitting
1: in the sunshine.
0: We all come down here one of those days. Yeah, man,
1: days. come down for tacos.
0: Oh, now we're talking. We'll talk about that over on the other episode, I think. <laughs> all right, everybody, for Blake, or for Blake, for Pete, this is Blake. And as always, good luck and good tones. All righty, folks, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Pete is just a delight to talk to, and I hope that you check out his book. It's called How to Produce a Record, A Player's Philosophy for Making a Great Recording. I am so, so excited to read this thing and see how I can apply some of his brains to my own material. Also, if you really enjoyed this episode, you're really going to enjoy the Patreon bonus episode. We go all over the place. We talk about all kinds of stuff. Man, it is so good. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Big shout out to Pete for taking the time to hang out, and big shout out to his team for reaching out. I'm really, really honored that they decided that this was a good platform for him to come on and discuss things, and thank you to all of you who are listening. Seriously, these things would not happen if it weren't for you. I'm not saying that with any kind of hyperbole whatsoever. If you were not listening to this right now, I would not get the opportunity to have these conversations. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you. I hope all is good wherever you're at, and I will talk to you on the internet very soon. Bye-bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here, I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings, made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. three different guitars that now have Gun Street harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunStreetWiringShop.com and check them out.
1: Hey, this is Chris Santos, host of Delirious Nomads, the Blacklight Media Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Delirious Nomads is a podcast about all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports. And me being a chef and all, we'll be riffing on some food talk every week, with very special guests from across the world. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com.